Well, hello, podcast listeners. Andrew here. Welcome to this episode of the Essential Church Podcast, an ongoing conversation about some of the most important issues facing the local church today. I am your host, Andrew Arndt. And, you know, on the podcast here, we like to try to mix it up a little bit. So our podcast is a good mix of practical stuff that can help you, theological stuff. We love to interview authors, uh, wrestling with them, with their ideas. And uh, we've got an author on the program today that is just amazing. We think you're really going to like it. His name is Tom Holland. He's an award-winning historian, author, and broadcaster, author of Rubicon, The Triumph and Tragedy of the Roman Republic, Persian Fire, uh, which was a history of the Greco-Persian War, uh, Wars, and a number of other books. Just an incredible guy. Uh, Glenn Packiam and I sat down with him to talk with him about his recent book, Dominion, How the Christian Revolution Remade the World. And it was a wide-ranging conversation on how Christianity's story of how the one God of Israel took on human flesh and died a gruesome death at the hands of the Romans, only to be raised to life again on the third day, how that story really made the world that we live in in ways that most people are very unaware of. It was a great conversation, and uh, there was so much content that we just had to break it into two episodes So this is part one of two with Tom Holland on his book, Dominion, How the Christian Revolution Remade the World. We think you're really going to like it. And without further ado, here we go. So Tom, why don't we start by telling us what led you to write this book? It's an extraordinary book. I have loved reading it. Andrew has loved reading it. And I think it's it's such a fascinating storytelling and and an amazing argument. But tell us a little bit about your journey into what made you write this. Well, it's, it's a very personal book. Um, and, you know, you might be used to, to people who write novels saying that uh, and slightly less used to people who write works of history saying that. But, but in a sense, um, you know, his, history is as personal as, as, as fiction. Um, and so the roots of this for me lie way back in my childhood. I was um, raised uh, Anglican. My mother is very devout. Christian, took me to church, I sang in the choir, went to Sunday school, all that kind of thing. But the truth was that um, I, I, f- I found, I, I, I quite enjoyed the Bible. I, I enjoyed the stories, uh, particularly the kind of bloody stuff. I, I, you know, I enjoyed the um, Egyptian army being wiped out by the Red Sea and tent pegs being hammered through skulls and all that kind of stuff. But generally, I found it less interesting than first of all dinosaurs and then the Romans. And they were my real love. And my fascination with with the glamour and the kind of cruelty and the swagger and the charisma of Rome basically blotted out my interest in uh, the figure of of Jesus, in the history of the Old Testament relative to to the history of the classical world. So when I um, came to write history, I thought I'm going to write about about Rome. That, That was my prime interest. But even when I, the first book I, the first history book I wrote was set against the backdrop of 9-11 and the build up to the Gulf War. And the conceit of the book was that basically the Imperial Republic of Rome with its uh, getting attacked by terrorists, going and, and fighting wars in the Middle East, that here was a mirror being held up to the Imperial Republic of the United States. And that was the conceit. But even as I was writing this, I could recognize that actually I was slightly straining it because the Romans, 
as I tried to get inside their heads in the way that you have to do when you write a book, much more than when you're just reading about them, came to seem to me actually far more alien than I'd thought. And the ways in which they seemed to be similar were kind of like false friends. You know, they, they, the more similar they seem to be, the profounder the sense of dislocation when you realize that actually they're not similar at all. Mm -hmm. And this was a sense that over the course of the past two decades, I've written a number of books about different periods of, of, of antiquity, came increasingly sharpened for me. And it was further sharpened by writing a book about the origins of Islam, which set the beginnings of Islam against the context of, of the, the world of late antiquity, which was a very Christian one, Jewish one, Zoroastrian one, kind of melting pot of different faiths and traditions. But that again left me with a deep sense that the world of Islam was profoundly alien to me. And so a bit like, um, you know, when you have an itch on your back and you're trying to look around, you're trying to scratch it and you can't find it, then you find it and it's so good. I began to realize that basically everything that made me feel that the classical world and the Islamic world was alien and different to me was rooted in deeply Christian assumptions. And so I began to think, well, actually, I'm, I'm, I'm really interested in this. You know, how, how far can I take this? And it was shut, uh, further enhanced for me, but in the wake of my book on the origins of Islam, in which I was essentially questioning whether what Muslims believe about the origins of Islam, you know, is this history or is this a myth? And I was essentially arguing that it's a myth, constructed much later to justify what, what Muslims you know, in, the, in the ninth or 10th century wanted to believe. And a lot of Muslims were very upset about this, said, you'd never do this to your own beliefs. Why aren't you doing this to your own beliefs? And basically my beliefs were a, a kind of soggy compound of humanist, secular, liberal, progressive views, whatever however you want to describe them. And I had always kind of essentially derived them from the Enlightenment and then from, you know, I bought into the Enlightenment myth in turn that, that these derive from the classical traditions. And I basically parked Christian tradition onto one side. But I realized that if I was going to do what the, the challenge that, that, that Muslims had sent me to, to try and trace the thread of, of influence that had led to me and my beliefs, then actually I was going to have to accept that that was a myth and I was going to have to follow those threads actually back to a place that I'd not originally thought that they would come from, which was Christianity, essentially. And so Dominion is an attempt to follow those threads, to try and explain where I come from, where the world that I live in comes from and to argue that the essentially progressives, liberals, whatever you want to call them, and I think it's quite telling we don't really have a kind of a, a catch-all word for them, um, that their, their convictions that, that they have somehow transcended superstition, that they have kind of emerged from the fog of uh, idolatry and, and, and bigotry into the kind of um, uplands of enlightenment, Right. It's a deep myth, and more than that, a myth that actually derives from Christianity. Okay, Tom, on that point, because I think that this gets right to the nub of your argument here in the book. So the subtitle of the book is How the Christian Revolution Remade the World. Well, interestingly, uh, that's, that, that's the subtitle in the United States. Oh, okay, what's the English in, subtitle? In, 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 in Britain, the subtitle is um, The Making of the Western Mind. And the British, uh, uh, the American the American cover has Dali's famous painting of, of um, yes. Christ on the cross. Yes. The, the British one has no mention of anything Christian on it on the cover at all. I think there's a single a, a single cross discreetly drawn in one of the O's. And the reason for that is that my editor was very anxious that that anything overtly Christian would alarm the book buying 
public. <laughs> and I think that that, that, that kind of brilliantly expresses the kind of cultural difference between the, uh, the European and the American traditions, that in America, the Christian tradition is much stronger, much more self-confident than yeah. it is in Europe. Um, you, had to, you had to be a little bit more deft in how you lured people into the writing. And, well, I, I, was, I was quite opposed okay. to it, but I think actually, it, 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 I think my editor, of course, I mean, it's his job. I think he judged it well. So because I, yeah, I think it was a kind of I, I, a kind of hook, hopefully a disguised hook. Yeah, exactly. Fish. Well, take us into it. You talk about looking at the Romans, and the more you got to climb, the more you tried to climb inside the mind of the Romans, the more alien they seemed to you. So here is this moment that Christians talk about: uh, God becomes flesh, and uh, he lives a human life, and he dies a gruesome death on a Roman cross, and is raised to life again in three days. Can you talk about? Just take us into the heart of that. What is it about the Christ event that completely, that really set off a chain reaction that led to the Western world and the Western way of thinking? Talk to us about that for a second. Take us to that moment, the Christ uh, moment. The earliest source we have for this is is Paul's letters. Yes. To the earliest Christian texts. And Paul, the letters are obsessed with the crucifixion. And Paul famously says that, it, you know, the, the, the idea that God in some way suffered this monstrous death, was tortured to death on the, on the cross, is um, a stumbling block to the Jews and madness to everyone else. And it's a stumbling block to the Jews for obvious reasons. I mean, the idea that... that, that a, a mortal man in some way is a part of the one God of Israel is obviously a stumbling block. But further, it's Paul's argument that this whole process, the death and the, the resurrection, in some way have established a new covenant, a second covenant, is also a stumbling block because it undermines the idea that um, it's the children of Israel uniquely that have a covenant. And Paul's understanding that this covenant now is for everyone created by the God of Israel. But in a sense, the, the focus is less on God as the God of Israel, now the God who, who, who has created everything. And that there is famously no Jew or Greek, there is no man or woman, there is no slave or free, that these differences are dissolved into the, the fact of this new covenant. Um, that precipitates all kinds of momentous influences on the subsequent history of, of, of the Christian West. For example, the idea that um, the law of God is no longer written on tablets of stone, that it's written on the heart. Yes. And this is a kind of novel idea that Paul is groping around to try and, 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 and explain. And, and, and there's nothing in the Jewish tradition really that enables him to articulate this. So he looks to the Stoics who argue that the divine is manifest in everything and therefore within humans. And they have this word synodesis. Uh, which we could legitimately translate as conscience. It's the yeah. spark of the divine within every human being. And Paul reaches for this to describe what he means about the law of God being written on the heart. And this is crucially important for the way that, that Western society will evolve, because the idea of conscience is mm -hmm. so fundamental to the way that we assume that laws should be structured, that people should behave, that the idea that it's actually quite a contingent idea is... You know, quite destabilizing yeah. and yet again you only have to look at at um not just the jewish tradition but the muslim tradition in which again you have you know the muslims like jews have this idea that there is a vast body of law that has been written by god that's been delivered by god that is good for all time to recognize how profound and, and how profoundly influential and contingent the christian idea that actually 
there isn't a written body of law that you have to look into the heart and that over the course of time your understanding of what's on the heart will be refined by the action of the spirit and that then feeds into the idea that our understanding of what is of what is good yeah. is progressive yeah. and so the very notion that our understanding of things that law can be progressive yeah. goes back to this kind of primal poor idea so that's the jewish side and then of course there's the, the 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 roman side the idea that you know this is going to seem madness and it's going to seem madness because to die on a cross is the worst death the worst imaginable. Death. Yeah. And it's devised to be not just physically excruciating, but mentally and emotionally excruciating because it is a humiliating death. And Roman society is a society in which value and status is determined publicly. Mm. So to be publicly exhibited on a, an instrument of torture, like a kind of billboard advertising the power of the Roman Empire over its provincials and the power of the free over the slave, because the, to die on a cross is the exemplary death of a slave. You are publicly exhibited like a slab of meat. Yeah. People will laugh at the sight of you struggling to, sh to shake off birds as they peck out your eyes or attack your genitals. You cannot, you know. It, you will die horribly and people will laugh as you die. This is the worst fate imaginable. So to imagine that you have this guy, or you know, a whole load of people, but we know Paul specifically is writing about them, turning up and saying, someone who suffered that fate yeah. is divine. And not just any God, but the one creator God of Israel. It's madness. It, it's madness. It's madness, and I love how you point out in the book that, look, it's not as if there weren't other myths, particularly in the Roman circles, of you know an emperor becoming God after he died, an honorable figure being elevated to divinity. But what Paul claims is actually the, the lowest figure, the most shamed figure, gets elevated. That's the stunning part of it. Yeah, and that, that, that is absolutely what is, is seismically revolutionary. Absolutely, in, 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 uh, in the classical world, the idea that that great men and it's usually men get elevated to, um, to to the halls of the gods is a very profound one. And in the first century AD, the century of, of, of Christ's life, um, the fastest growing cult is not Christianity; it's the cult of Caesar Augustus, yep. who is the son of a god. He's the son of Julius Caesar. His name, he's literally, it's not a title; it's literally his name is Divi Filius, son of a god. Augustus means basically someone who is midway between heaven and earth. These are his literal names. And when he dies, he ascends into heaven. Yeah. He sits at the right hand of his father. And he is honored as having brought an era of universal peace. And this message is called Evangelion, good news. Good news, gospel. gospel. Yeah. And wherever you go, there are, there, are, there are temples, there are statues, there are inscriptions praising this son of a god who has ascended into heaven who has brought peace to the universal order everywhere you go and it's interesting that one of the places in the roman empire where this cult seems to have put down the deepest roots is galatia galatia and it's yeah. in galatia that you get this you know it's in paul's letter to the galatians that you get this incredibly moving hymn to universalism mm -hmm. but it's like a kind of parody of the universalist cult yes. of caesar uh, yes. and and i think that that's that, if you, if you see it in that light, then you get some sense of just how blasphemous Paul's message is 
not just to Jews, which you know you can absolutely recognize, but to the Romans as well. Right. Tom, you might get a kick out of this, but actually the, the day that I was reading your section in Dominion about Galatia and about these inscriptions to uh, Augustus and all of these phrases that then Paul reclaims and repurposes to use about Jesus, uh, I was headed up to a songwriting retreat with one of the worship pastors at our church here, J uh, John Egan, who's been on this podcast before. And we wrote a song that day on, on the good news being that there is a savior and his name is Jesus. But it, you, you know, you, you never know what your work is inspiring here, but and it's not, this wasn't necessarily new information, but I thought the way that you set the two things side by side, particularly in the region of Galatia and then comparing it with Paul's letter to the Galatians was just beautifully done. Mm. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much. But I mean, you know, it's, it's, and, and, and in, the, in, the, in the Greek world as well, Galatia is part of the Greek world as well as the Roman world. Again, this is a tradition going back to Alexander the Great as well. The idea that there is a sota, a savior, yeah. that... Um, that the, 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 the king is kind of manifest on earth and then is taken up to heaven and therefore is much more kind of emotionally satisfying figure to identify with than you know the distant Olympians. This is also part of the kind of cultural climate and again part of what Paul is blasphemously yeah. reconfiguring. Yeah. Well and, and to name it I mean I you know I, I think a few of us were introduced to you first when you appeared on that show the unbelievable show with Justin Brierley and with Tom Wright talking about how revolutionary St. Paul was and it sounds like to summarize two of the threads that you're saying here is what Paul did with the Jesus revolution, it was a revolution of conscience, where all of a sudden the individual and their ability to discern morality was important, was authoritative even in some ways. Conscience, but also a revolution of community, that the way a community was formed was no longer by ethnicity or by a particular set of rituals or practices, but community was now formed based on this uh, strange and unusual faith in, in Jesus. So it was a, a leveling effect by both uh, both counts because of the revolution of conscience and community. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, of course. Um, <clears throat> I, I, again, Paul is is um, this is a challenge for Jews, mm -hmm. uh, and and this is a kind of shadow over Pauline universalism. Is that when you say there's no Jew or Greek, that sounds impeccably ecumenical. It's mm -hmm. the, it's, it's essentially it's what underpins Western values to this day. It's it's yeah. the great ideal of multiculturalism, the idea that difference gets dissolved. But, but equally, there, there is a kind of shade there because Jews turn around and say to Paul, well, we don't want to have our difference dissolved. You know, we want to stay Jewish. Right. And that, 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 that generates a kind of tension between Christian and Jewish traditions that, that obviously never entirely goes away. But it is also um, a, a, a challenge to the civic traditions of, yes. of Greece and Rome because an ecclesia, an assembly, a church is something that is specific to a given city. And the idea that the ecclesia is actually kind of Catholic, Catholicos, yeah, yeah. universal, is a real is a real challenge. But as it turns out, um, over the course of the centuries that follow Paul's life, um, is actually one that is much better suited to the way that the Roman Empire is evolving than anything in the classical world. Because by the beginning of the third century, uh, with an emperor called Caracalla. He decrees that everyone, every male citizen, everybody, every free male in, in the Roman Empire becomes a citizen. And therefore, they become part of a universal ecclesia, a universal assembly. And essentially, over the course of the third century, a succession of Roman emperors are basically looking for a single god who will be appropriate to this single ecclesia. And mm. in the end, it's the Christian god 
that passes the the audition basically for the reason that that the the the, um, the understanding of what it is to be universal is given its profoundest its most um kind of intellectually morally theologically emotionally satisfying form by christianity Fascinating. Tom, I want you to talk for a second about human rights here. One of the things that we take for granted in the Western world is the idea of human rights. All people have rights. All people are created equal and should be treated equal. And we just think, just to your, some points that you've made already in our podcast here, uh, we just take that for granted. It's so much a part of the water <laughs> supply that we just think that this was self-evident to all people at all time and all rational people should you know, subscribe to this idea. You point out that Christianity uniquely gave the idea of human rights to the world and specifically through the crucifixion of the Son of God. Can you talk about that and unpack that idea a little bit? How it is that the story of the crucified Son of God actually gives to us our modern notion of human rights? Well, the, the, the paradox of, of this is that um, it emerges from um, a, a kind of revolutionary moment in, in, in medieval history that in many ways has provided the example of what first the Protestant Reformation and then the Enlightenment has kicked back against. And it's the ideal of um, papal supremacy, the idea of the Roman church as a genuinely Catholic um, with a reach spanning the whole of Christendom. And this is a revolution that um, really explodes in the 11th century. And it, it, it derives from all kinds of theological influences, but essentially the idea is that um, there is the dimension of the cyclum, which is a, a, a Latin word meaning the limit of human memory. Mm. Um, things that are caught up on the flux. You're born, you live, you die, and then you're cast away like a kind of stick on a flowing river and you vanish into oblivion. Uh, and, and counterpointed against that is the dimension of the church, which offers a, a single religio, which is a, is, is a bond uniting and joining you to the dimension of the heavenly. There's one God, there's one church, therefore there is one religio. And with this religio, you can escape the flux of the cyclum. You, you can attain eternal life. Mm. And from the time of, really from the time of the fifth century, when Rome falls and Augustine, the great church father, um, articulates this idea of there being a city of God and a city of man. This becomes fundamental to the way that people in the Latin West understand how, how reality is ordered. And in the 11th century, this gets weaponized and a series of popes and their servants, incredibly able, basically ram through this idea that the church should be sovereign, that it should be entirely, you know, if, if, if the church is the bride of Christ, then Emperors and kings have no right putting their grubby, dirty fingers all over the intact, radiant vestments of, of the Bride of Christ, so they've got to back off. And it's you know, difficult to do this against a bunch of warlords, but essentially this is what the, 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 the popes and their servants achieve. And they set up this framework of the church as, as basically the world's first sovereign state. Uh, and this means that everyone in, Christ, in Christendom has the right to appeal to the church for law for justice, for order, over the heads of earthly rulers. And to do that in turn, you need frameworks of law. And Christ, Christendom, for reasons we talked about earlier, doesn't have what the Jews or the Muslims have, a kind of vast corpus of law that's come directly from God. It has the, 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 the conscience, you know, it has the law but, that's written on the heart. But it does also have a succession of, of canons and decrees and, 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 and of course it has elements, it has the rulings you can get from the Bible. So what happens is that 
institutions called that will come to be called universities start to, to pop up over Western Europe. And in these universities, you start to get scholars who, particularly focusing on law, start to construct, look at the canons and to construct a model of law that will enable the church to provide a, a divinely sanctioned justice for those who appeal to them. And the core foundational idea is the notion that if you look at the Gospels, it's manifesting all Christ's teachings that the rich have a duty to care for the poor. Yes. It absolutely manifests most famously in the parable of, of, of Dives and Lazarus. And they start to extrapolate the implication of that, that if the rich have a duty of care to the poor, then the poor have a right to the charity that the rich are going to give them. And so over the course of the Middle Ages, you know, this age of crusaders and inquisitions and the persecution of heretics, um, all the things that, that, that are the absolute um, kind of bugbears of first of all Protestants and then uh, enthusiasts for the Enlightenment, simultaneously in the universities of Christendom, you have people constructing this idea that human beings, every human being has rights, that a human being has a right to food, to, um, to shelter, to clothing, to the, the basics of life. And even with the Reformation, this is an idea that the, the Protestant reformers absolutely take for granted, although the, the tradition remains much stronger in the, in the Catholic world. Um, and of course, when, you start, when the Enlightenment starts to kick in, famously with Jefferson <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, and, and the American Revolution and then the French Revolution, the revolutionaries, even though they feel that they are rejecting uh, the kind of hidebound superstition of, 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 of Christianity. They're not doing it so profoundly that they turn back on this idea that there are no. human rights. And no, both the American Revolution... The frame. Yeah, both the American Revolution and the French Revolution found, are founded on this idea that there are rights. And what then happens is because they frame these ideas in, in secular terms, they're able to export them as somehow being universal. So that when the, when the United Nations is set up, the Declaration of, you know, the Declaration of Rights that, that provides the United Nations with its charter, it's absolutely drawn up by, by lawyers from the Christian tradition, but they're able to pass it off as being somehow universal. What's happening now is Western power retreats, Western influence retreats, is that it's becoming evident yeah. that actually the idea of human rights isn't universal at all. It's a specifically cultural one and specifically Christian one. And in an age where China, say, is as globally influential as the West, I think that it will be unsustainable in the long run to argue that human rights just kind of hover in the air like angels or something. It, you know, we, 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 as a civilization, we're going to have no choice but to say, well, where does this come from? And it right. comes from, well, from Christendom. Yeah. I want to read you a quote from that, Tom, or that you said on this from your book, page 400 here on the chapter on the Enlightenment was absolutely brilliant. You said that all men had been created equal and endowed with an inalienable right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness were not remotely self-evident truths that most Americans believed they were owed less, that, that they were owed less to philosophy than to the Bible, the truest and ultimate seedbed of the American Republic, no matter what some of those who composed its founding documents might have cared to think 
was the book of Genesis. So here you're talking about whether it was conscious or subconscious or unconscious, whatever. Uh, the, the fact is these, this is the fruit of Christian roots and the experiment of sort of severing the tree, severing the branches from the root system is, is maybe part of the experiment that we're about to discover over the next several decades. Yes, uh, but, but you think about it. Um, if, if, if you can just believe, I mean, the thing is in the middle ages, I, I don't think that people believed in the way that the, the, the Christians today believe because mm -hmm. they didn't have the counterpoint of, of disbelief. Yeah. It was, it, so they were, they, were, they were goldfish in a goldfish bowl. They, you know, belief was just what they had. I think our relationship, the relationship of most people in the West today to the concept of human rights is very similar. Most people, you know, nobody disbelieves, no, nobody rejects the idea of human rights. Everyone believes in it. But actually, when you say, well, where does this idea come from? Why should we believe them? It's ultimately a theological idea as believing that the Lord Jesus Christ rose from the dead on the third day. Yes. <laughs> you know, human rights do not objectively exist. Exist. They yeah. do not yeah. exist. Yeah. And if you're going, you know, you can't say, I don't, you know, I, I, I'm superior to, 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 to theology and to, you know, mumbo jumbo and superstition and simultaneously say that you believe in human rights yeah you, know, you might you know if you're going to believe in human rights you might as well believe in angels <laughs> that's great thanks for listening to this episode of the essential church podcast our goal is always to strengthen and provoke the thinking of church and ministry leaders and so if you found this or any episode helpful to you please go to itunes and leave us a review your reviews help leaders just like you find our podcast. And if you have any comments or suggestions on people or topics you'd like for us to cover, be sure to let us know via social media. And of course, please do share this and other episodes you find helpful around the web. Grace, mercy, and peace be with you. Mm -hmm.